morning. As you can see on the screen, kids kindergarten to fifth grade are now dismissed. Let me go out that door. Um, this morning, just like to, as we're thinking about this week, uh, my prayer has kind of been for us, for all of us, that, that God's love has found us, that God's love is holding us, um, that God's love is with us now. I think that is a, a fitting way to, to begin uh, this service as we talk about Paul's conversion. Um, we're continuing our series on Acts, the church then and now. We're asking this question, what do we learn from them back then that, that can actually help us today? Um, and looking at Paul's story, this conversion story, you really see it's a story of redemption. This call and conversion of Paul is not just a typical, I'm choosing to follow Jesus. In fact, N.T. Wright sums it up by saying, no, 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 no. Paul making this decision to follow Jesus or Jesus really making this decision to choose Paul is a volcanic eruption. It's a thunderstorm. It's a tidal wave, all waving in one. In fact, in that same passage, he talks about it and he says it like this. You know, if the gospel of Jesus, which we talked about last week, right, that God came, that God lived, that God died, that God was resurrected, N.T. Wright says, if the gospel of Jesus is the hinge on which the great door of history swung open at last, then this conversion of Saul of Tarsus was the moment when all the ancient promises of God gathered themselves up, rolled themselves up into a wall, and came hurtling through the open door out into the wild world and beyond. Volcanic eruption, thunderstorm, tidal wave, game changer, if you will. And I think this is why this story has resonated all throughout history of not only the church, but really the world. But what's interesting to me is that this story reminds us that in our stories, there might be moments, there might be turning points in our story, but all these turning points have to lead to action that change destinies. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking maybe some of us in this room are fans of classic literature. And if you're a fan of classic literature, at some point you've probably read Julius Caesar. Maybe it was ninth grade in Miss Vivian's class and they made you read it, but you had to read Julius Caesar. As you remember in that story, you think about the turning points that, that was, what was the moment that changed the forever destiny? You might be thinking that maybe it's when Caesar comes marching in, right? And the seer comes to him and says what? Beware the eyes of March. Or maybe you're, you're thinking about that same procession when Caesar comes in. And remember, he's been playing this political dance, not unlike uh, our, our own politicians, right? Where he's like, no, I don't want the power. No, I don't really want the power. I don't really want it. I don't want it. But, but I want you to love me, right? And when the, the republic is gathering and all these nobility starting to recognize and look around and be like, this guy's getting too much power and he keeps killing people and the people are liking him. We need to do something. But for me, the turning point, the moment that changes the destinies of people is when his friend, friend, Brutus, who was actually more loyal to Pompey, who Caesar has just defeated, when Brutus makes that decision of what? I'm going to join the conspirators and I'm going to kill him. A moment that changed destiny. Or maybe if you didn't read classic literature, right? Maybe you're into classic movies like The Lion King. And you remember in The Lion King, after Simba is, is driven out of the kingdom by guilt, after he's betrayed by Scar, after he's really good at living the Hakuna Matata means no worries life, it's Nala, his inevitable queen, who confronts him. But that's not enough. And it, it's, it's Rafiki, his dad, seer, who comes to him and actually confronts him, and that's not enough. And the moment that changes the forever destiny is when he has a vision of his father, and his father says what? Remember who you are. Remember what you've called to be. And maybe you're not a fan of classic film, or maybe you don't go that far behind like me, but maybe you've seen another classic film that's newer to you, The Black Panther. And it's in that movie 
right? At the coronation ceremony of T'Challa after his dad has died, after he has all the people gathered, after all the celebration, he's challenged by another king, Mbaku, defeats that king. But it's not until what? He has a vision. And it's in that vision that he comes to his father and he goes to his father and says, I can't do it without you. And his father says, yes, it may be hard for a good man to be king, but this is what you're called to do. Moments change histories because in those moments, your destiny starts to unlock. And a lot of times those moments are flowing from visions. Brutus had a vision for the republic he didn't want, so he killed Caesar. But Simba needed to see the vision of who he was called to be to be king, just like T'Challa needed to see the vision of what he was supposed to be to be king. So our moments are not just turning points, but they're destiny changers. And as we look at Paul on this Damascus road, may we remember that it's not just a moment, that it's not just his destiny changer, but it's how God changed the destiny of our world. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much that in each of our stories, there are moments where you've called out to us. In each of our stories, there's moments where you keep calling out to us. In each of our stories, there are moments where we may not see the vision of the future, but we're so grateful that you do. But God, we thank you for this Damascus Road experience that it not only changed Paul forever, but it changed our world forever. We thank you for this Damascus Road experience because it reminds us, Lord, that you see us, that you come to us, that you feel the pain of your persecuted people, that you're willing to call out even your greatest enemies and change their destinies to be one of your greatest champions. So God, we pray for our own Damascus Road experience, whether it's happened, whether it's happening, whether it's yet to happen, that we may see you, that we may feel you, that we may know you, that we may hear you and go out and change not only our destiny, but the destinies of our world. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. I'll be reading the first 19 and a half verses. So 19, and then we'll cut off at the first half of 19. Starting at verse 1, we'll also have it up front. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there that belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard his voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. 
Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. One of the things that's beautiful about this story is it reminds us that redemption may be a moment, but it always requires a turn. Redemption may be a moment in your story, but it always requires a turn. So it's this consistent reminder you see through scripture that God doesn't just choose, call you to choose to follow him, to make a decision to follow Jesus. But even as we're going through the book of Acts, we see there's a difference between believers and followers. And there's a difference between followers and disciples. So redemption, when it comes to Paul, not only changes his forever destiny, it changes Ananias' destiny, but it changes the destiny of every single Christian who's ever lived since then, including us. So redemption is not just a decision, it's a turn to follow God. Now, this Saul that we meet in Acts chapter 9, we've seen him before. Again, Luke is this brilliant writer, and like every good storyteller, he's going to foreshadow. And we've met Saul before. And, and in fact, we've seen foreshadowing for, for main characters before. Again, the last couple of weeks, we look at Stephen and Philip. We meet them as what? Hellenistic Jews who were deacons. We meet them as men who were full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And you see, as they evolve uh, throughout the story, Stephen and, and, and Philip both are preachers. Stephen first goes to the synagogues, and Philip goes to, to the Samaritans. And both as preachers, they both become witnesses. Philip is known as the evangelist, and we learned about him last week, and we'll, we'll learn more about him next week. We find out that the first Gentile believer of Christ was a black man who looked like me, which I think is an amazing truth about our God, right? That's an amazing truth, because you read about him as the Ethiopian eunuch, but you have to remember that Ethiopia, as we know it, shows up in the Bible as Abyssinia. That the Ethiopian eunuch is actually from South Sudan. And if you've ever seen Sudanese people, you might even argue that they're darker than me. So I love that here we'll find out the story of Paul, the Jew of all Jews who's converted. But before we even meet the Jew of all Jews, we meet the ultimate outsider with a different skin color, a different continent, a different faith. But the same God who shows up and saves and redeems. But when we get back to Paul, we realize that, yes, Philip goes out as the evangelist, and Stephen is the martyr, right? The one who gives the story to the Jews of all Jews to say, this Jesus who you persecute is the Jesus who's the Savior of the world. This scripture that you think you know, you've been blinded, and now you must see that it all points to Jesus. And you would think that Paul would get the message through Stephen's testimony, but he does not. He doesn't get the message until Jesus shows up in the vision. But when we meet Saul, he's a witness to Stephen's martyrdom. In fact, Luke even put that he approves of it. And in case you think Luke is just starting gossip and talking trash on Paul, later on, when he becomes Paul, he recounts this story in Acts 22 and Acts 26, and he even says himself, I approved of the killing of Stephen. And when we meet him in Acts chapter 8, he's now a church destroyer and a Christian and prisoner. And the thing about Paul is that, you know, there's some Paul passages that you were like, well, I don't know how he feels about women, but the, the greater, I would say, the greater um, of opus, I guess, of Paul's passages, you see that Paul does not discriminate. And it starts even before he's a Christian. So he's imprisoning men and women. He's like, if you believe in Jesus, you're a leader, you're going to prison. 
but even worse than prison, the fate that some Christians around the world are facing now, he's approving of the killing of people who believe. And this is the one that God calls to change the world. When we're introduced to Paul here in Acts chapter 9, it's a very interesting phrase that Luke chooses. In the very first verse, he says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That's interesting. Because when you're breathing out murderous threats, Luke is kind of, a, 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 it's a play on words in many sense. In one sense, he's saying this guy is literally inhaling the hate. He's inhaling the hate and he's living the hate. But worse than living the hate, he gets life from the hate. And that's what hate does. It not only blinds us, but it gives us this evil energy that allows us to do even more evil. And I'm not going to explain the whole problem of evil, but I think that's a crucial component of it. If you only breathe in hate and you only breathe out hate, then hate becomes what you live on. And if that's what you live on, your entire focus and destiny will be to destroy. And that's who Paul was, the one who breathed out these murderous threats. And as he's doing more and more evil, Paul is also brilliant. There's a reason why God chose him, and there's a reason why he wrote over half the New Testament. He's a brilliant mind. And he recognizes that not only is he breathing out this hate, but he recognizes that if I'm going to take this persecution out of Jerusalem, I need to bolster up my hate. I need to bolster up my uh, credentials. I need to bolster up my authority and power. Because Paul himself had no power. So he goes to the high priest, and he gets letters, and he knows his culture, right? So even though the Jews are in the diaspora, if the high priest says something, it would take a, a very strong rabbi who doesn't want his job for very long to go against what the high priest is saying. So Paul gets these letters, and he's going to go to a foreign country. Think about that for a second. Damascus is in Syria. Paul is in Jerusalem. And the high priest had enough power that he could write a letter that a, a rabbi in Damascus would be like, I'm not going to go against him, and I'm actually going to listen. And I'm going to turn over these Christians, these followers of the way. So Paul bolsters up his authority, and he's going to seek them out. Again, he, he shows no partiality. Men or women, he does not care. He's going to imprison all of them. He's going to persecute all of them. And even if you are free, I think that's also, if we want to go back in our own history, you got to go back to maybe the 1700s, the 1800s before the Civil War, where you can escape slavery, but it can always still take you down, track you down, and put you back in chains. So there's that. There's also the reality that you could be born free in Philadelphia, and a slave catcher can say, no, you, you belong on this plantation, and they can take you. That's the same fear the Christians lived with, that even if they were free, Paul can still persecute and kill them. Paul can still persecute and take them back to Jerusalem in chains. And this is what he's going to do in Damascus. He's going to find the followers of Jesus. He's going to imprison the ones who comply. And he's probably going to confine to death the ones who are leaders or the ones maybe he just doesn't like. So when we meet Saul in Acts 9, he's continuing to be this persecutor who's imbibing or, or breathing in all this hate. And his life is fueled by killing and persecuting God's people. I think that's important because some of us think we're not worthy enough to be used by God. And I'm like, at least you're not Saul. 
Some of us think we're not good enough to be used by God. Again, you're not Saul. Some of us think that we'll never be good enough. Again, you are not Saul. And look at how God used Saul. So what can you do (laughs) or what have you done that God cannot forgive, transform, redeem, and use you and your story? Everyone has access to God, yes, but every single one of us is called to be working for God right now. And if the devil is telling you that your story or your history or what you've done makes you unworthy, remember, if God can use Saul, if God can use Saul, I think God can use you. Amen? So the next part of our story, we see Saul meeting Jesus. And I call this part Saul the light seer. Because as he's driving down to Damascus, and some theologians have said that the, 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 the one of the crux or one of the main things of Jewish faith was this thing called holy imagination, where like the holiest of holy people would sit there and just dream of God, and, and they would dream so hard that the vision would come to them. Now, I never dreamed that hard before, but one day I'll dream that hard and maybe it'll happen. So some people say maybe he was dreaming so hard, and there's this passage in Ezekiel where literally Ezekiel talks about And I love this because Ezekiel does the same thing John the Revelator does, right? He's like, I'm not saying it's heaven, but it might be heaven. It might look like this, right? That's what Ezekiel does. He's like, I'm not saying I saw God because, you know, if I saw God, I'd probably die. But, like, if it was God in this vision, it would look like this. And so part of the Jewish rabbis, what they would do back then is they they would try to capture that same vision. Because obviously if you have a vision where you see God and you can talk about it, you would be elevated. So some people think that's what Saul was doing on his march to Damascus. Me, I personally think Saul was thinking about who all he was going to capture and kill. But that's just me. You take whatever one you want, right? I just think that's what he was focused on. But what we know for sure is that on this road, Saul is greeted by Jesus, and a light shines down from heaven, and and all the people around him. In this passage, we see Saul is on the floor, but later on when Saul recounts the story in Acts 22 and Acts 26, he says, all the people fell down on their face. Everyone recognized his light from heaven. That'll preach. Everyone recognizes light from heaven. It doesn't matter if they believe. It doesn't matter if they know God. If it's true light from heaven, everyone recognizes light from heaven. We don't just have to wait to the end of the day when every knee and every tongue will bow. But if it's truly from heaven, everyone will recognize it and fall down at their feet. So fall, Saul, I'm sorry, Saul falls down when he sees his light from heaven. And Jesus says something that has struck in my heart ever since I was a boy. He doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? And that's what he meant. He doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my father? And that's what he meant. He doesn't even say, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? And that's what he meant. But Jesus unites with his people. And for a lot of us, this is a theological thing we understand, right? That God is with us. But in the persecution, the killing, the imprisonment, the abandonment, the the spreading out into the diaspora, the persecution and suffering of his people, Jesus looks at Saul and says, why are you persecuting me? If you want something that's different about our God, know and hold on to the fact that when we say there's nothing you've been through that God hasn't seen, it goes a little bit deeper than that because there's nothing you've been through that God doesn't feel. And you don't have to experience something to feel the impact of it. 
But what I love about our God is that when he sees his children suffering, he identifies with them. Saul, now why are you persecuting my church? Now why are you persecuting our God? Now why are you persecuting these people? Why are you persecuting me? I think it's why God doesn't just identify in Matthew 25 with the least of these. It's why Jesus becomes the least of these on the cross. Because he identifies with us. And that's why Jesus calls us to love the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the immigrant, the persecuted. Because he doesn't just love them, he is them. Why are you persecuting me? So if we're not living to shine our light to the hungry, the thirsty, the bereaving, or the, the grieving, I guess that's about easier to say, <laughs> the immigrant, the stranger. If we're not living and loving them, we too are persecuting our Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, and I think it's very interesting, because at this point, I don't think he knows who he's even talking to. He just knows something is happening, and someone is here, but I don't know who it is. So he says, who are you, Lord? Because he's not sure if it's an angel who's come, right? Because that's happened. You have to remember in the Old Testament, the angels show up a lot, right? And people fall down. So he's not sure who exactly he's talking to. He submits to the light from heaven, but he still doesn't know what's going on. But what is Jesus' response? He says, I am Jesus. And that's important. Because when Paul converts to Christianity, it is not just this, you know, what do we say, thunderstorm, volcanic eruption, tidal wave. Paul is not converting to a new faith. It's deeper than that. You see, it's easier to convert to a new faith. You know, for example, if you're an Eagles fan, you've already won your Super Bowl. Like, you're done. Like, you're not winning another one. Like, your children might see another one, right? But if you convert it to being a Giants fan, you'll win one like every 10 years. You know, so like that is changing teams like that is literally like turning and coming to the good guys. Right. That's beautiful. If you're a Patriots fan like Kevin Kelly, you win one every couple of years because you cheat. But that's another conversation. You know, that's a, don't hurt for him. He's got Super Bowls. Right. They cheat. But again, I think it's important for us to recognize that, that, that Saul doesn't change teams. It's deeper than that. It's deeper than that because Saul realizes that, oh, my goodness. I've missed the mark. Everything I've read in the scriptures is found in Jesus. Everything I've believed is found in Jesus. All the promises that were gifted to us is found in Jesus. Oh my goodness, the one I'm persecuting is the one who died for me. He doesn't choose a new faith. He comes to be born again with new eyes. And that's what happens here. He doesn't just turn away from Judaism, but he realizes that everything I thought I knew was wrong. And I think while the Ethiopian eunuch can represent people who were outside the church and came in, I think Saul's story really reflects those of us who grew up in the church. Because it's so easy to make it our parents' religion. It's so easy to make it what we think we should know. But it has to come a point where we choose Jesus, where the faith of our fathers and mothers, where the faith of our past becomes our own. But it must come a point, a turning point in our story, where we say, oh my goodness, I choose Jesus. 
there must come a point when we say that. And so when Jesus says, I am Jesus, Saul realizes, oh my goodness, I've missed the mark. But yet he chooses Jesus and he submits. And it's very interesting because after he submits, he gets his three days of blindness. And theologians do what they do best. They speculate as to why. There's some who says, you know what? He's going to do a great evil, so God needed him to pump his horses a little bit, and that's why he was blind. There's some people who says, no, he did great evil, so he needed to be punished, right? And there's some people who says, no, 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 no. Here's a man who was walking in all the earthly power, and God was making him submit. Because if you're blind, you need somebody to help you walk. And if you don't know where you're going in a city, you need to place your trust. That God right away was saying, not only did you miss the mark, but I need you to fully trust me. So God was humbling him in these three days. But the fact that he goes without food or drink means that this wasn't punishment. But that Saul was actually going to say, you know what? I'm going to pray. I'm going to rely on God. I'm going to learn how to trust you. And that's what's happening in Damascus. But also what's happening in the second vision is with a guy named Ananias. Now, this is tricky. First time we met in Ananias, he was trying to lie to God and steal from God. The ground opened up, he died. This is not that guy. Later on in Acts, another Ananias that shows up. It's not that guy either. This Ananias is only there for Saul. I think there's something poetic and beautiful about that. Because what we know about Ananias is simply this, he was a disciple, meaning that he wasn't just someone who says, I believe in Jesus. He wasn't just someone who says, I'm going to try and follow Jesus. He was someone who actually believed and followed Jesus. And what we know that, we, the proof that we know he believed and followed Jesus is that he knew how to listen to God. He knew what the voice of God sounded like. And then here's the one we brethren in Christ were like, he obeyed. I still love that when we, when we try to summarize our story as brethren in Christ, what do we say? It's the quest of holiness and following God. Yes, piety, yes. But it's the quest of piety and what? Obedience. That's how you know Ananias belonged to God. He knew what God's voice sounded like. He knew how to listen to God. He knew how to submit to God. And he obeyed. So Jesus says, hey, listen, I need you to go to Saul. He's been seeing you. He's seen me in a vision. He's actually seen a man named Ananias, you, who's going to come, and he's waiting for you. And I love Ananias because whenever you doubt God, read your Bible, right? This is Jesus coming to him in a vision, and Jesus saying, this is what I want you to do. Some of us, we just like pray and be like, I think this is where God's leading. We'll trust him, you know, and he'll bless it, right? No, this is Jesus physically coming in a vision and telling him what to do. And Ananias looks the Lord in the face and is like, are you sure? Like, are you sure, sure? Because I've heard about this Saul, you know? Like, he, he kills us. He puts us in jail. Like, he's actually in town to kill us and put us in jail. Like, are you sure? And I love what the Lord says. He says, go. I have chosen him to be a witness to the Gentiles and to all of Israel. And I think what's easy to miss is that God didn't just choose Saul that day, but he also chose Ananias. Because without Ananias, there is no Saul who becomes Paul. Just like Peter, another great leader in the first church, without no Andrew, who first followed John the Baptist and sat at Jesus' feet for three days and went back and told Peter about this Jesus. Without Andrew, who you don't really hear much about again in Scripture, there is no Peter. 
And it's a reminder to us that not all of us are going to be Saul of Tarsus, but God calls all of us to be somebody's Ananias. God calls all of us to be disciples who know and can hear his voice, to be people who will obey, and to be people who, when God says go, we go. There's no chance that Ananias knew who Saul was going to become. In fact, I'm not even convinced that Ananias was convinced he wasn't going to get killed. I'm not even convinced that he knew for sure that Saul was going to be like, yes, I love you. But he still goes. Despite the threat of danger, despite his doubt and unbelief, despite his not being sure 100%, he obeyed. What a testimony to us that God can hold our doubts that God can hold our fears, that we don't even have to know the future, that we don't even have to know exactly how it's going to work out. But if we obey, not only will God be glorified, but we too, we too can be used by God. And you know that the transformation happens, not in the moment that, that Jesus comes to Ananias in the vision, but maybe it's on the journey towards that house. And I think God has a sense of humor because the guy's house Saul is staying in just happens to be called Judas. And I always found that funny as a kid. Like, can't we call him something else like Jude or John? Like, like, not the guy who just betrayed you. Can't we just change the name, right? So Ananias has to go to Judas' house. And something changes because by the time he gets to Saul, what does he greet Saul as? Not as persecutor. Not as light seer. Not as someone who's imprisoning us and killing us. Not as someone who's far from you. Not as someone he fears. No, he greets him as what? Brother. He greets him as brother. A reminder to us that the people we might think is on the outside, that the people we might think is not worthy of God's love and touch, that the people we think are not deserving of God's love, God calls us to welcome them in. It's not just that our God welcomes people home, it's that God has called us to welcome them home too. And when you see in this story, you see in these little verses by Ananias, the first thing he does is he welcomes Saul through touch. And there's nothing like someone who feels unworthy and unclean getting the touch of someone who loves them. And I think this pandemic has helped us embrace, not all of us, our love language isn't all physical touch, but like how many of you when you hug someone for the first time without worrying in the last three months were just like, wow, I didn't know I missed this. Some of us who don't even like to touch people are just like, wow, this is new. This is, this is good. You know, this is, this is good. And Ananias greets him through personal touch. And then he greets him by calling him brother. So, you know, whatever fear that Saul had in his heart, I'm not saying it disappears fully, but I'm saying by the warm touch of Ananias, by the greeting as brother, by telling Saul their combined story, by saying, Saul, I'm the one you saw in your vision, and you're the one that God sent me to. And Ananias, by being obedient to God, gets to be God's instrument that helps redeem Saul. And that's why I believe we're all called to be somebody's Ananias. Because you just might be the instrument that God needs, not just to evangelize or change the world, but to save one. Because you don't know who that one will become. You don't know who that one will do or what they will do. But you might be God's instrument to redeem. I think when we look at this story as a whole, and we'll have communion in a second. When we look at this story as a whole, I think it's important for us to kind of take a step back and assess a few things. 
The first one is Saul's life is characterized by breathing in hate and living off of hate. And it was leading to destruction of not just Christians, but his own life. So I think the first thing we ought to do is, what are we breathing in? What are we drinking from? How is our lives defined by what we're consuming? And I'm not just talking about the TV. The, the old people, oh, I can say old now, I guess. But the people when I was a youth was all concerned about the TV that we were drinking and the, the, the shows and the music we were listening to. That's all important. But more important than the TV you watch is the philosophies you hold. More important than the philosophies you hold is how the people around you know you. They may know the TV you watch, but you can watch the godliest TVs and still not love them. You can listen to the best CCM music of all time and still not know the love of Jesus. And they may not see the love of Jesus in you. So I'm not saying that stuff's not important, but when you look at your life, what are you breathing in and what is the output that's coming out? Is your life leading to building up and love and light, or is it leading to destruction of people around you, of relationships around you? What are you breathing in? Because what you're breathing in is what you're putting out. Ananias, like I said, we all should be Ananias, but he knew how to listen to and how to hear God. So the second point that we need to kind of assess ourselves is like, yeah, what are we breathing in? What are we putting out? The second one is, do you know how to hear God? We live in a culture that has so many voices coming at us. If I was a marketing major, if you read about like how many messages we get every day, it's overwhelming to just think about how many messages are thrown at you every single day from your telephone, telephone, from your cell phone to your television to the internet. All these different things are coming at us. So the question becomes, do you know how to hear God? Because the devil knows how to get your attention. But do you know how to give your attention to God and the things of God? And the third thing we've said before is that redemption may be a moment, but it always leads to a life-changing turn. So I want you to think this week about what was the turning points of your life and what's the fruit that came from it. Because sometimes it just helps us to remember how God has been there for us, how God has carried us through, how God has moved us along. So what was that turning point and what was the fruit? Because what I love about the reflection of the fruit and the reflection of God's goodness is that's what helps at least me propel me into the future. And the last thing as we get ready to take communion is how can you be Ananias? You know, Pastor Linda in her prayer says, you know, we all have someone we know that may not know Jesus. It could be parents, it could be siblings, it could be children, it could be grandchildren, it could be friends, it could be neighbors. How is God calling you to be an instrument to maybe, just maybe, introduce that person to the light that is Jesus Christ. Introduce them to the love that comes from Jesus Christ. And you, empowered by the Spirit, partners with God to help redeem and change their destiny forever. Simba got to learn, remember who you are. But in that great movie, that classic movie, God has taught me that all of us need to remember whose we are. 
in the next moments, we'll be sharing in communion together. Uh, Pastor Woody and I will be up front celebrating this new life that we have in Jesus. As you came in, there was communion um, elements there. Hopefully you got one. If you still need one, maybe raise your hand and we can go around and give you some. Um, we ask that you're a follower of Jesus and invite you to partake of the bread and the cup. We don't ask that you're a member of this church, just that you're a follower of Jesus. We ask that you hold them until we can all partake them together. The table of the Lord is for all who believe and all who have received Christ Jesus as Lord. We now invite you to come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you are perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come, not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, but also the Savior of us, the one who left heaven to come to earth, the one who lived on earth to show us how to love to please you, the one who went on Calvary's tree to shed his blood, to prove once and for all that even the blood that flows through our veins does not matter as much as the blood that he spilled. Lord, we thank you for your resurrection. We thank you for you even working on heaven. But we thank you now for this table, which reminds us of your great, great love for us. Lord, we thank you for willingly, for freely, for lovingly coming to be the sacrifice so that we can be redeemed and ransomed, so that we can be set free, so that our eternal destinies are changed forever. I invite you to take out your bread. My sisters and brothers, oh, we also have the responsive reading up there. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. same way after the supper he took the cup which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing and he told his disciples this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me Lord Jesus we thank you your scriptures teach that the life is in the blood and I thank you for the blood that was spilled for this world on a cross but I also thank you for the life that is still coming to us through that blood, that bathes us, infiltrates us, fills us. Thank you for the love that surrounds us even now. And help us, Lord, to drink in your life during this communion. In your name we ask it. Amen. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup 
remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. Um, at this time, we're going to have our closing songs. As the worship team comes back up, I'd like to invite you to join us as we sing along. Um, also, we'll have the pastors up front. We'd love to pray for you. Um, whether it's something you want to respond to in the message, whether it's maybe someone that God has put on your heart that you want to be Ananias to this week, um, or whether you have something else going on, we'd love to pray for you. So please come up or, or join us as we sing along. Thank you.
can't think of a better um, benediction. So the, the author of this song, I guess it's House Fires. I don't know who in the group that was building the fire wrote this line, but I love it, right? I don't think there's anything better we can say than show me who you are. Fill me with your heart and lead me in your love for those around me. That's the story of Paul. That's the story of Ananias. And that can be the story of every single one of us. If we're willing to say the same thing to our God, show me who you are, fill me with your heart, and lead me and lead us in love for those around us. Upon our God, we thank you so much that you can not only hold our fears and our doubts, but you can even hold our questions. Lord, when we say, show me who you are, you're more than willing to oblige. When we submit to you and say, fill me with your heart, you're more than willing to gift us more and more of your spirit, of your power, of your love and your mercy. But Lord, fill us so much with love that it overflows in and out of us into the people around us. Because if we see who you are, if we're filled by your spirit, if we love like you love, we will change this world. We will win this world and we'll make on earth as it is in heaven. Not only possible, but the living reality, not only for us, but for the people in our lives. In your holy and precious name, Lord, we pray, amen. God bless you all, have a great week.